Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Bibles this morning. Um, we're going to turn to two places in Scripture. We're going to look at Romans 2, 13. Just that one verse in Romans 2, just that Romans, uh, one verse in Romans 2. We're going to read Romans 2, 13, and then we're going to turn in our Bibles back to the Gospel of Luke and read Luke 18, 9 through 14. When you get to Romans 2, 13, if you would, stand and we'll hear God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then let's turn back to Luke 18. And read 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get, but the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Since the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. May be seated. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, this is your word, and we are your people, and we come before you asking you to uh, asking you to submit cause us to be submissive to your word. We come to you wanting your word to be raised above us so that we can look up to it as the standard. Father, let us see your word as the standard this morning, and in that, let us hear the good news of your son Jesus, and let us hear the proper response to that good news. We ask it in your name. Amen. First of all, I want you to note that one common thread runs through these two passages, in Romans 2.13 and Luke 18.9-14, and that, that one common thread that runs through both of these passages is justification. Justification. The second thing I want you to understand is that by comparing these two passages, I'm breaking homiletical and exegetical rules just a little bit because these two passages aren't exactly parallel, so some might say that it's not fair to compare them. Uh, because Romans 2 is talking about Jews and Gentiles, 
Luke 18, 9 through 14 is dealing with a comparison of Pharisees and tax collectors. Jesus' parable here is not comparing the Jew and the Gentile, but rather he's comparing two different kinds of Jews. So even though these two passages are not completely parallel, I want to make the argument that they're both saying the same thing about justification. Because if you remember two weeks ago, uh, we covered Romans 2, 12 through 16 as a whole unit. And so, and so you might want to go back, if you have CDs, uh, or if you want to go online and listen, you might want to go back and review that sermon so that you get the full picture of, of what we're dealing with here today. It's interesting when you think about it because the Pharisee didn't go down to his house justified, but the tax collector did. Okay? The Pharisee doesn't go down to his house justified, but the tax collector did. And then in Romans 2.13, Paul says that the doers of the law will be justified and not the hearers. But Pharisees do the law, right? After all, their whole thing is keeping the law. They're always arguing with Jesus because they think he's breaking the law in some way, shape, or form. And the Pharisee in Jesus' story is, is even pointing out in his prayer that he fasts twice a week, which is above and beyond what the law required. So why is it that the guy whose entire life is defined by how well he keeps the law doesn't get justified, but this other guy who makes a living from stealing from his fellow Jews does get justified? Didn't Paul ever hear this story? Well, I bet he did. And I bet he's not saying anything different about justification than what Jesus did. <coughs> See, according to New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner, by recording this particular story that Jesus told, Luke is indicating that the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, apart from works, has its roots in the teachings of Jesus. Even though we just read in Romans 2.13 that the doers of the law will be justified, Paul will later say in the next chapter in Romans 3.20, that no one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. So which is it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Absolutely not. One of the things we need to understand is that the law of God reveals the heart of God. In Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and six different times throughout that sermon, Jesus quotes the law, and he says, You heard it said X, but I say to you Y. And he does this six different times on six different topics. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oath-keeping, how you shouldn't repay evil for evil, loving your neighbor. The law. So he, he goes down the gambit of these things. He says, the law says do not kill, but I say do not be angry or even insult your brother or sister. The law says do not commit adultery. And I say if you look with lustful intent upon a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The law says you can divorce your wife if you give her a written notice of divorce. I say anyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. The law says don't break your oaths. I say just tell the truth all the time and you won't have to worry about breaking your oaths. The law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say turn the cheek. If someone wants to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. The law says love your neighbor. I say love your enemies. Right? You, you can go down the list of these things that Jesus says about the law. So when Jesus is going through all of these laws, what's he doing? Is he adding to the law of God? Absolutely not. 
Deuteronomy 4.2 tells us you must not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 says every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Jesus would have been very familiar with these texts and he would have been careful to observe them. So he's not adding to the word or to the law of God. He's revealing what the intent of the law was. The intention of the law was always to reveal the righteous character of God. Jesus' audience wouldn't have been necessarily surprised by anything he said because everything that Jesus says is in the law anyway. It's just that, it's just that those are the parts of the law that were being ignored by the religious elites of the day who were focusing more on external obedience rather than inward transformation. <coughs> Peter Lightheart tells us that virtually nothing in Jesus' teaching is unprecedented in Judaism. There is nothing that a Jew could not have concluded from a diligent study and meditation on the law. When Jesus says that we are not to hate, he is echoing Leviticus 19.17-18. When Jesus says love your enemy, he generalizes from the law from Exodus 23.4-5 and, and repeats Solomon, Proverbs 25.21-22. 20, uh, and 22. When he teaches us that lust is a form of adultery, he's saying no more than what the Tenth Commandment required in Exodus 20.17 when he says you shall not covet. Jesus is not correcting the law, but the practical and pedagogical distortions of the law that were widespread in Judaism. So many of the Jews of Jesus' day were taking the law and they were slicing and dicing it up to fit their own preferences. They were focusing on the external commands while ignoring the internal requirements so that they could appear righteous without actually being righteous. And that's a problem even among us today. We sometimes find ourselves tempted to take the parts of the Bible that are easier to follow and ignore the parts that are harder. You know, we, we like all the parts of the Bible that tell us to love everybody and not judge others, but we don't like the rest of the parts that talk about church discipline and keeping other Christians accountable to their profession of faith. That's harder. That requires conflict. And the problem with a lot of Christians today is that there's no fortitude. Men aren't willing to be men when it comes to defending the gospel. The Bible tells us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. But somehow, somehow we've interpreted that to mean that we need to have backbones like jellyfish. If Jesus promised that the world would hate you just as it hated him, then it does you no good to be afraid of conflict. So again... Jesus isn't adding to or taking away from the law. He isn't saying anything different from what the law was saying. He was simply bringing to bear the parts of the law that were being ignored by the religious elites of his day. <coughs> so now let's bring all this information back to Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 9-14. The question that I mostly want to answer this morning is this. If the doers of the law are justified, according to Romans 2.13, then how is the tax collector justified in Luke 18? Think about it. 
Paul says doers of the law are justified, not hearers only. And then we get back to this parable where Jesus says that there's this tax collector, and he goes down to his house justified, whereas the Pharisee, the one who keeps the law, is not justified. How is that possible? And I want to answer that question this morning. I know this may not seem like an important question to some of us, but this is an issue of biblical consistency, and this has to do with an important doctrinal aspect of justification. Number one, first of all, justification is something God does, not us. Let's get that clear. Justification is something God does, not us. God justifies us in his sight. We do not and cannot justify ourselves. Secondly, justification is a gift of God that is freely given by grace apart from works of the law. Number three. What we can conclude is that, thirdly, there will not be a single person who stands before God as righteous on Judgment Day who has not been justified by faith and faith alone. There will, be a, there will not be a single person who appears righteous before a holy and perfect God and will be able to say, I got this righteousness on my own, I was good enough, I was smart enough, I was obedient enough. So with all of that in mind, Let's look at this parable and find out what the answer is. So in order to do that, we're going to look at three things specifically. We're going to look at the audience of the parable. We're going to look at the audit of the parable. And we're going to think about the application of the parable. So let's first examine the audience of the parable in Luke 18, verse 9. It says, He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And look down on everyone else. Notice they trusted in themselves. They were righteous. And they looked down on everyone else. See, there's a difference. What we see in this verse, first of all, is that there's a difference between self-righteousness and saving righteousness. Self-righteousness requires you to compare yourself to others. Because if you don't have a lesser standard to compare yourself to, then you realize how terrible you are on your own. I'll say that again. If you don't have a lesser standard to compare yourself to, you realize how terrible you are on your own. Because of that, self-righteousness requires you to look around and find people who are worse off than you are so that you can feel better about how good you are compared to them. There's a quote here from one Episcopalian priest that I rather enjoy. He said, anytime we begin keeping score of our own life or the life of another, we need to know that something deeper is going on. Scorekeeping is the way we either deny or try to overcome the feeling of emptiness, the loss of meaning, the brokenness in our own life. It is a symptom that we are, that we are standing in the place of death. We use it to deny, to escape, as a way of convincing ourselves that we are okay and our life is fine. <coughs> and so think about what's being said there. We use self-righteousness and we use the idea of comparing ourselves to, to other people. We use it as a way to suppress our own unrighteousness. We use it as a way to suppress the conviction of the Spirit. Because, because what we do is we say, well, I'm fine because I'm not like them. I, you know, I may criticize people, but I don't criticize people as much as that Karen over there does, right? We, we, we find all kinds of ways to justify ourselves, and it doesn't work with God. 
And see, like me, for example, it's easy for me to scroll through my news feed and find a pastor who's committed adultery, tax fraud, stolen from his church. See, there's always another Jimmy Swagger or Jim Baker out there. There's always another Tully and Chavidjian around the corner. It would be easy for me... <coughs> Excuse me. There's always, there's always a Jimmy Swagger or Jim Baker out there somewhere. It would be easy for me to say, well, at least I'm not that guy, Right? And you know what? I've been guilty of doing that before. It's easy for, it's easy for me to slip into self-righteousness. But self-righteousness can't save me. The only righteousness that can save us comes from outside of us. Namely, it's the righteousness that has been imputed to us by faith through the... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I'm very sorry about this. The only righteousness that can save us comes from outside of us. Namely, it's the righteousness that has been imputed to us by faith through the atoning work of Christ. You see, all the times that I've compared myself to those other pastors doesn't negate all of the times that I've lost my temper with my wife and failed to love her as Christ loves the church. It doesn't negate the things that I've said, that I've thought, and that I've done, that I shouldn't have said, thought, and done. That applies to all of us as well. Self-righteousness doesn't actually deal with our sin. It just makes our sin look prettier when it's compared to other people's sin, when the fact is that sin, whether it's yours, mine, or everybody else's, stinks in the nostrils of God, and it's worthy of damnation. See, the only way that sin like that can be dealt with is not through self-righteousness, but through saving righteousness. And saving righteousness only comes when we get honest with God about who we are and about who He is for us. And when we're and what we're going to see, what we're going to see is that as we look at the audit of the parable, this tax collector, and not this Pharisee, gets honest with God. And through his honesty, he encounters the saving righteousness of God. Look at verses 10 through 13. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteousness, or greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so what we start out with when we take audit of this parable is that there's two people. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's interesting to note that when Jesus speaks of the Pharisee and the tax collector here, he's speaking strictly in stereotypes and caricatures. We know that not every Pharisee we encounter in Scripture was as hard-nosed as the one in this story. We know from their interactions with Jesus that they could be quite stubborn and downright vitriolic, but there were some who were sincere. 
like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night and he acknowledges that Jesus is a man sent from God. And Jesus tells him that he must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God at work. Jesus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus sincerely wanting to learn from him. And then in Acts chapter 5, we encounter another sincere Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. Peter and John are in and out of prison because they were preaching the gospel. And then when the Pharisees went to arrest them again, Gamaliel, who was one of the most respected Pharisees of the day, he told, he told the rest of his associates, he said, you better be careful what you do to these men. Because if what they're doing is of God, you'll find yourself fighting against God and you won't win that fight. See, people, people who were pushed to the margins of society would have recognized the caricature of the Pharisee in Jesus' story as the type of person who dismisses their cry for help or the type of person who refuses to acknowledge their needs. And then on the other side of that coin, there's the tax collector. The Pharisees might have thought it odd that a tax collector would even go to the temple in the first place, but as they hear Jesus' story, and they hear that he's standing afar off, it all starts to make sense in their minds. You see, in the temple, when you're standing afar off, it means that you're toward the back, maybe even in the outer court. See, this Pharisee just walks right in and takes his place in the inner court of the temple. It was only the Gentiles and the unclean who couldn't enter the temple further than the outer court. So the tax collector... He willfully places himself among the unclean. He willfully places himself among the Gentiles because he feels so unworthy to even be there. And the Pharisee and, the Pharisee and Jesus' audience are probably thinking, of course the tax collector is going to be standing afar off. He's not as holy as the Pharisee is. He cheats. He steals. He lies. He takes, a hard, he takes the hard-earned money of his own people. Of course he's not going to go in the inner court. So the sinners and tax collectors in Jesus' audience recognize the Pharisee in this story, and the Pharisees also recognize the tax collector. Everyone in Jesus' audience has a picture in their mind of these two characters, and not only that, but they have a preconceived notion of where they fit in the story. And then we begin to hear them pray. So there's two people. And there's two prayers, a haughty prayer and a humble prayer. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Notice this haughty prayer from the Pharisee. He thanks God for his characteristic obedience. He thanks, he thanks God that he's, he's not greedy, that he's not unrighteous. He doesn't cheat on his wife. And then finally he points the finger and says, I'm not like this guy either. I don't steal like he does. I don't cheat like he does. I don't place myself among the unclean like he does. So he, thank, he thanks God for his characteristic obedience. He says, God, I thank you for my righteous behavior. And then he also thanks God for his ceremonial obedience. If you look at verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. I, I pay tithes. 
God, I thank you that I keep the ceremonial traditions. And what's happening is the Pharisee is thanking God for his own self-righteousness. But then we listen in on this humble prayer in verse 13. The tax collector standing afar off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Seven words. That's all he said. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector understands that he has a problem. The problem is that he needs mercy. The Pharisee doesn't acknowledge any problems in his prayer. Right? The Pharisee doesn't acknowledge any problems in his prayer. You've, you've met these kinds of people, probably met them in church, where every time you ask them how they're doing, brother, how you feeling, how you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. Couldn't, couldn't be any better. They don't have a problem in the world. Listen, they're not real people. Real people have problems. Real people have problems. If you ask me how I'm doing, I may tell you fine. But if you really want to know, I'll tell you how I'm doing. The tax collector not only understands that he has a problem, but he understands that he is the problem. He understands that he is the problem because he acknowledges that he is a sinner. See, the Pharisee, doesn't, the Pharisee doesn't view himself as a sinner. The tax collector knows exactly where the guilt lies, and it's solely with him. The tax collector echoes the sentiments of David when he prayed in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you alone have I sinned. See, the tax collector goes in, and he goes into the temple bearing the weight of sins in the temple and he doesn't try to hide them he doesn't try to blame other people he doesn't try to justify himself he simply says here I am a sinner in need of mercy now notice something about the tax collector's prayer not once does he say God I thank you that I'm not self-righteous like that Pharisee over there See, then he would have been guilty of the same thing. And I bring that up because when we read or study this parable, we have a habit of instinctively wanting to put ourselves in the position of the tax collector because there's no way we could be like that Pharisee. We're far too humble for that, right? Raise your hand if you're far too humble for that. <laughs> Trick question. It's almost like this parable sets a trap for us because as soon as we begin to think that there's no way that we could be the Pharisee, then we reveal that we are, in fact, the Pharisee. And the point of that is to show us that we are all capable of self-righteousness. We're all capable of trying to appear better off than what we are. We're all capable of exhibiting a false humility that cloaks our self-righteousness. <coughs> Justo Gonzalez is a theologian that I've come to appreciate over the last few weeks. And I was delighted to learn that he had written a commentary on Luke. And this is what he said about this parable. He said, there is a story about a Sunday school teacher who after a great lesson on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector led his class in prayer 
and said, Lord, we thank you that we have your word in your church and that we are therefore not like this Pharisee. Right? The contradiction between what the parable says and what this teacher did is obvious. But we fail to see that in the very fact of pointing to that contradiction and perhaps even chuckling at this teacher's incomprehension that we are secretly saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this teacher who did not even understand your parable. <laughs> you can see how it's easy to fall into that trap. So the tax collector doesn't make his prayer about how well off he is compared to anybody. When he goes to God in prayer, it's just him and God. All the cards are on the table. Nothing is hidden. And if we look at the beginning of verse 14 again, we'll see what happens as a result of his, of his honesty. Look at, verse, look at the beginning of verse 14 in Luke 18. He says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Well, how is he justified? He just admitted that he was a sinner. Sinners don't do the law. They're lawbreakers. They're rebels. If we revisit what we just read in Romans 2.13, then we see that it's the doers of the law, not the hearers who are justified. So how can Jesus say that this tax collector went down to his house justified? Doesn't Jesus know anything about justification? Well, of course he does. What's happening is that this tax collector is doing what the law intends for him to do. This tax collector has recognized that he is in no shape to carry the full weight of the law. And so he goes to God, broken by his sin, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, here's a little secret about Romans 2.13 that I haven't told you until now. That passage, that passage says that doers of the law will be justified, but who does the law? Nobody. Who keeps the law? Nobody. So then if no one can keep the law, can anyone be justified before God? Yes, but not on the basis of law keeping. Instead, it's on the basis of faith in the only one who has kept the law for us and who is, and who is the only person who has kept the law perfectly. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has perfectly and righteously kept the law of God. And so when you get down to brass tacks with God and you're not trying to be self-righteous and you're not trying to compare yourself to others and you, you begin to realize that Jesus is far more holy, far more perfect and far more righteous than you'll ever be and that's precisely why Jesus is your only hope. The only hope of a connection to God you have is through the righteousness of Christ. You plead His righteousness. You trust His righteousness. And you believe in His righteousness that is freely offered to you through the shed blood of His cross. I'm going to say four things real quickly and we're going to close. What does all this mean for someone who might be here and might be listening in and thinking, how can I be justified before God? How can I partake of his righteousness and stop trusting in my own righteousness? Or maybe you're saved and you just need to be sure. Well, here's how you can be sure. Number one, like the tax collector, you must recognize the mercy of God. Like the tax collector, you must recognize the mercy of God. The first thing the tax collector did was beat his chest and cry out for mercy. 
See, fundamental to our Christian faith is the idea that we serve a God who is full of love and mercy, ready to pour it out upon his people. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Number two, like the tax collector, you must recognize the misery of man. Intrinsic to the very definition of mercy is the acknowledgement that you don't deserve it. As soon as you begin to think you deserve it, it ceases to be mercy. The tax collector knew that if God were to give him what he deserved, he would have damnation, and he would have received that damnation justly. That's why Paul will later say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, a wage is what you earn. When you go to work on payday and you've worked all week, you get a... <coughs> When you work all week and you go to work on payday, you get what? A week's worth of wages. It's what you earned. Well, let's say you were out sick. Let's say you were out sick and you don't have paid sick days. And your boss says, you know what? I know you were sick and you couldn't help it, so I went ahead and paid you for the days you didn't work. Well, that's no longer a wage. That's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And it was given to you anyway. Do you realize that when you receive forgiveness from God, you didn't earn it? Every sin, every mistake, every dirty thought and deed should be held against you. But if you trust in the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, then you won't get the wage you earned. Instead, you'll get mercy. <coughs> Number three, like the tax collector, you must respond in meekness. The tax collector acknowledged who he was before God. He was a sinner. Start there. Start with who you are. God already sees who you are. You don't need to try to come to God trying to be anybody or anything other than who you are. Start with who you are before him and allow him to fill in the blanks. Come to God humbly, not haughty like the Pharisee. Number four, Rest in the promises of God. Notice that verse. Notice again, verse 14 says that the tax collector went down to his house justified. Notice something. When the tax collector left, he left justified. Something happened to him in that temple while he was praying. When he was praying, he was receiving justification from God, and he was able to leave knowing that something was different. And this is where we get the application of the parable. He went home resting in the promise that God would resist the proud and give grace to the humble. See, James says in James 4, 6, see, James says that in James 4, 6, he says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But see, that's not a New Testament idea. In James 4, 6, James is actually quoting Proverbs 3, 34. Where the writer of Proverbs says, Surely he scorneth the scorner, but he giveth grace to the lowly. See, that's the beauty of serving a God whose character is consistent. He's always been willing to give grace to the humble, and he always will be. Well, where does that leave the Pharisee? See, the tax collector goes down to his house justified, but where's the Pharisee? We don't hear anything about the Pharisee after that. While the tax collector is leaving the temple and going to his house justified, 
the Pharisee is still in the temple. And he's still stacking up his good works before God. Because that's because if you don't trust in the righteousness of God and you only trust, trust in your own self-righteousness, that's all you'll have at the end of the day. Is you'll have good works that won't amount to anything on the day of judgment because on the day of judgment you will have trusted your works more than the work of Christ on your behalf and that will get you nowhere. And so we need to be careful this morning. We need to be careful this morning that we are trusting the saving righteousness of Christ rather than our own self-righteousness, which will only earn damnation. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, you are good even when we're not. You are faithful even when we're not. Father, let us not try to compare ourselves to others. Let us not try to justify ourselves. Let us come to you begging for mercy. Let us, come to you, let us come to you to receive the justification that you freely offer in your Son. And Father, if we are justified by faith this morning, let us rest in that. Let us rest in that promise. Let us be reminded of how good and merciful you are. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Let's say. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.